Welcome on board the Good Ship Talking Space. This is episode number 620 for the week of November 19th, 2014. I am your host, Gene McCulkin, and I'm sitting here with the usual suspects, save, save one, and we've got a really good guest tonight as well on the panel. So uh, good day, Mr. Mark Rademan. How you doing, sir? Doing great. Plenty of things to talk about and not near enough time. Oh, cool. You got that right. And uh, Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftlass, uh, how you doing there? Very well, Gene. Okay. And uh, Ms. Kat Robeson, welcome back on board. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here as always. And from Spaceflight Insider, Mr. Jason Ryan, how you doing there, sir? Couldn't be better. Couldn't be better, sir. Glad to be here. Grand, thank you for, uh, <laughs> thank you for going ahead and... Uh, coming on board and, and uh, subjecting yourself to this. Well, we had one heck of an historic week last week. Uh, the Rosetta lander, Philae, finally made landfall on Comet 67P and essentially just captivated the world. The Philae lander itself had a little bit of a rough landing. It kind of bounced across the surface uh, maybe two or three times, resting in a off of a small cliff. Uh, the reason why is for some reason or other, Philae's harpoons did not fire or could not affix itself to the surface of the comet. So it kind of skipped over the surface, did a couple of bunny hops, and then kind of landed in such a attitude that I guess only one or two of its uh, solar cells were, were receiving light. But uh, they still were able to get some science out of the lander uh, before it finally uh, gave its last transmission, which I believe was on the 14th around uh, 8, 10 p.m. That was a total loss of contact or total loss of power uh, from from Philae. But uh, a lot of a lot of hearts broke all over the world. But uh, wow, this this mission just captivated everybody um cassie what do you think that is first off why did this whole thing just kind of capture everybody's imagination to me this was like almost the apollo 11 moon landing all over again it's a first uh, that's a big one it's a first and it was also a major major mission for isa i think from what i saw i don't watch a lot of mainstream television news, but I watch BBC World News most mornings and a few of uh, the evening network news, and it made it onto everything. That's pretty rare, actually, for something that's not done by NASA, that has anything to do with space. It's pretty incredible how much everybody paid attention to it, and it was given attention by the media, which helped make more people pay attention to it, which helped more media pay attention to it. Hey, Kat, not only did media pay attention to it, but uh, social media paid a heck of a lot of, of attention to it. I was 
I was also kind of live tweeting some of the updates and, and putting some of the photographs up there. But social media, too, went absolutely bonkers with this. Yeah, it was a big deal on social media. In fact, Comet Landing, the hashtag, trended higher than Kim Kardashian's news did, which is a pretty major deal for a space-related hashtag to trend higher and longer for one of the major internet celebrities. So it was something especially, I was very- sorry, especially when the actual picture was called break the internet, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So Kim Kardashian tried to break the internet, but apparently Philae was better at keeping it together. The other really interesting thing with the social media coverage was the XKCD comic that did live updates, about 140 of them throughout the landing process from uh, right prior to the separation until uh, we got our final contact knowing where Philae was, which was pretty interesting and a great way for younger people to really connect and be able to understand what was going on because the great thing that happened with XKCD was that the science got translated into humor which made it easier to understand uh, some of the issues like the cold gas thruster uh, not functioning, the harpoons not working, the bouncing, everything like that. It was was a really interesting uh, story to follow on social media. And like Cassie said, it it captured everyone's imagination because this is the first time we were landing on a comet that's billions of miles away from Earth that took 10 years to get to. Uh, So pretty historic event. One of the things I did notice out there in social media land was the way the the two accounts were kind of interacting with each other. Yeah. And and the first person I thought about when I was watching that was Veronica McGregor. Uh, back when she first started doing the Twitter stuff for NASA, uh, you know, way back when during the Mars Phoenix lander, she basically gave it a personality and so on. And that's what's kind of Issa kind of stole a page out of their book in a way, I, I think. What do you what do you guys think? Veronica is the giant who all other social media accounts stand on the shoulders of. She is the person who gave machines of voice in space and each mission since the mars phoenix lander has become more and more human and more and more relatable and you know veronica was there in mission control uh very proud of the phyla team you know i enjoyed seeing her tweets and her posts on social media uh during the entire uh entire landing but she knew how to connect with people and to make people care about a mission that was unmanned. And that is so key in the environment we are in today. Exactly. But I think, too, you know, going back to the little cartoon strip that you had mentioned there, Kat, one of the things that they kept on emphasizing on there is do harpoons work on a comet? Don't know. You know, if you remember that. And then has anybody tried this before? Nope. So, (laughs) you know, it it kind of really put the whole thing in perspective and just basically said, look, we're taking a long shot here. And it harkened back to the Apollo era. Right. Is this going to work? We don't know. We think it is. 
And we hope it will. And it did. And it really did. You know, you mentioned earlier, Jean, about, you know, this is kind of an Apollo moment. And it really was. And it really had that same sort of feeling. Yeah, that was my thought. I mean, I'm going to relate back to the coverage again from Issa. Did anybody catch the beginning of it? The very, very start of it? I did not. Okay. And I'm going to put this in in the show notes. There was a, a, a neat video called Ambition that they started it off with. And I think it really, really kind of put the whole mission in, into the proper perspective. It was basically a, you know, a, a, an older teacher trying to teach a, a younger student, so to speak, how to manipulate matter, if you will. This was years and, and you know, centuries from now. But he brought up the Rosetta mission as a chance to, that we were trying to do the, essentially the impossible. And he, he, he brought out the fact, you know, this, it was all about ambition, stubbornness. You know, we reach, we fall, we get up again, and we adapt. And it was all about the human spirit, really. Yes, this was all about knowledge. This was all about trying to learn more about a comet. And we kind of did a little bit. I mean, we, we're, we're seeing... There was some evidence, I guess, um, from the BBC that there was some, you know, organic molecules, but they really didn't identify which they what organic molecules that they discovered in the tenuous atmosphere around the comet. Uh, that's still yet to be defined. At least it, it hasn't been uh, as of now. Uh, I haven't seen any reports indicating that those organic molecules have been identified, but that's essentially the whole purpose of this too: to find out what's in this thing. What, you know, does water exist? Where did the water come from here on Earth? Did it come from a comet, perhaps, or or other other source? So that's that's really what we're trying to do. We're really trying to to add more to our knowledge, essentially, about our own planet. And this is just we're trying to put all these pieces together. And we did get some very good data from it. It's still being analyzed. So that's part of why the reports aren't that complete yet. I mean, it's still a lot of the data is pretty raw. This obviously was just last week. So more and more will be coming out as various teams start analyzing what came in from their instruments. There were so many instruments on this lander. It was a huge list. We have already learned quite a few things, though. Uh, the spot where it landed was a very, very hard surface. And from what we know from Rosetta's observations, that means that it probably has to get more and more porous as it gets more towards the center and the outside is less porous. We've learned that we did have a problem because the harpoons didn't deploy. The Not all of the sensors made it to do their tests, but we did manage to... I say we, <laughs> I guess, you know, as humans, but yes. uh, <laughs> the, uh, the SD2, the sampling, drilling and distribution subsystem was activated and we don't know yet if a sample was actually collected. The data is still being analyzed for that. We do know that it didn't detect a lot of gas output. So that might mean that a sample collection didn't happen. Or it might mean that what they did collect doesn't off-gas a lot. So there's a lot of like preliminary observations coming out, but we still have to wait for the meat of it. Yeah, agreed. Um, if anybody's interested in following this, the the Rosetta mission, Cassie, what what website are they going to go to? Because I remember the you were talking about in the pre-show a, a blog that that they that ESA keeps updating from time to time. 
Uh, do you mm -hmm. have the, do you have the uh, the web address for that blog handy? I do. It's and actually, if you just go to esa.int, esa.int, it has links to all their missions. But to get directly to Rosetta's blog, you go to blogs.esa.int slash Rosetta. Again, that's blog.esa.int. That's and forward slash Rosetta. Mm -hmm. okay. Oh, and also for to follow the entire mission, you go to rosetta.esa.int. Okay, and we'll we'll go ahead and put that in the show notes. Anybody else have anything they want to go ahead and add about uh, this this historic week? I will say, you know, and you had mentioned prior to this show uh, how exciting the Rosetta mission with the Filey Lander was for the Osiris Rex team. Yes, uh, and as a University of Arizona alumnus, I couldn't be more excited for that mission. So, I think the lessons learned from the Filey Lander will be incredibly helpful for future missions, especially ones that we know are upcoming like OSIRIS-REx. Indeed, and OSIRIS-REx is going to go ahead and uh, uh, hopefully have a sample return mission from an asteroid, something we're kind of looking at here. I know this collides sort of with the asteroid uh, recovery mission uh, that we're planning for or that NASA's planning, should I say, for, uh, uh, I believe it's somewhere around the uh, 2021 time frame, but uh, we'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed on that one. I'm not, I'm not going to go into the politics of it, and I'm, but uh, the whole idea behind the asteroid retrieval mission is that uh, we're going to go ahead and capture an asteroid and put it around uh, parking orbit somewhere close to the moon and be able to go ahead and visit this particular asteroid and take samples from it at will so you know, to understand what's going on. That's a, that's a piloted mission, and we're hoping for that one to be for, I believe, they may actually schedule that as early as Exploration Mission 2 for Orion. But uh, the uh, OSIRIS-REx mission is one that's, that's also robotically going to go ahead and retrieve a sample from a, uh, an asteroid. And uh, I believe they're going to have about two years, uh, Kat, if I'm not mistaken, to sort of select their site. They're not going to be as rushed as, uh, as no. the Rosetta team was. No, they already know what asteroid they're targeting, and they have plenty of time. Uh, the team, the PI, is over at uh, the University of Arizona, but they're, of course, working with um, other uh, investigators, both at space agencies and other universities. But they do. They have plenty of time to carefully uh, select their landing spot, and trust me, they will be using information from the Filey landing to inform them to make the best possible decision. Again, there's uh, some more international cooperation in the works. So as we, uh, as we leave Rosetta for now, I'm sure Rosetta's going to be back with us in the news in the coming future. So we'll go ahead and turn stateside right now. And Jason, I'm going to go ahead and throw this over to you. Uh, we're going to go ahead and discuss the uh, exploration flight test number one, which is scheduled to launch from the Kennedy Space Center on December 4th at around 7.02 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Jason, you've been following this for your outlet, Spaceflight Insider. Could you bring us sort of up to date as far as what's been going on as far as preparations are concerned? Thanks, Gene. Yeah, um, a couple weeks ago, maybe a week ago, my, my math and days seem to kind of bleed together. Uh, 
The Orion spacecraft was rolled from the Launch Abort Systems Facility, or LAS-F, over to Space Launch Complex 37 at uh, Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida. Uh, they had a little bit of a delay. There was some really horrific weather when they tried to do the first rollout on the on October 27th. I don't know. Gosh, I wish I could remember dates better. Uh, but long story short is it didn't happen the day they planned. They had to screw up the 24 hours. But um, we've been following this over at Space Flight Insider for a while, you know, because this is this is the big mission of 2014. This is the first flight of NASA's next crew-rated spacecraft. Uh, it'll conduct two orbits. Uh, it'll go out some 3,600 miles, and it'll shake down the heat shield, parachutes, avionics, and a number of the other uh, systems that the Orion spacecraft has got to have tested out before crew fly on it. Uh, it's often compared to Apollo 4. I kind of see the similarities there. I kind of don't, because in Apollo 4, they actually had the all-up mentality in place, and it on that mission, they launched the command service module for Apollo atop, um, atop an actual uh, Saturn V. This one will use a United Launch Alliance uh, Delta IV Heavy. So there's a little bit of dichotomy, a little bit of difference there. Um, but it has been um, pretty exciting to see that you know the, the spacecraft, see it roll out, see it you know it when it came uh, to Kennedy, they had a big event and uh, a lot of state local elected officials were there, a lot of NASA folks were there. And uh, this huge unveiling, it was this green kind of, you know, conical gumdrop shaped thing with all these little squares in it. It didn't look like what we had seen all the art look like for Orion. And so, you know, a lot of us were like, wow, well, what happened to it? And, uh, you know, NASA has been pretty uh, consistent about getting us out to uh, Kennedy for various events. Sometimes you really couldn't see a whole lot. Uh, other times. You could definitely see something was happening. You, know, you could see that they've added the black shield, the, the, the heat tiles around it. You could see when they've uh, added other structures onto it to get it ready for launch. But i got to be honest, as much as seeing Orion, what was really cool is something that we did a while back is we actually went out for the, uh, the, the rollout of the Delta IV Heavy to the pad, and we are over at another launch site, and the guys were taking photos, and there's this huge rocket rolling out, and you know it's lifted up, and we've seen Delta IV launch before, but for some reason... This kind of resonated out there because people were seeing a rocket that's going to test out a created spacecraft. So it was really cool to see the, the steps move along in this process. And uh, they, they you could see the flow, and NASA was very excited about it. And, you know, when you go out to the press site, you go to the Tedris L launches, you go to even the Maven launches, or, you know, it, there's a little bit of buzz in the air, a little spring in the, uh, the PAO steps, but nothing like this. Uh, they were just, the, the NASA team out there was just, very excited, very motivated. You could, you know, people that are like usually very kind of reserved and they're patting folks on the back and running around. You know, Bob Cabana was out there and he was in a great mood. It was obvious. Uh, so it's, it's pretty exciting. You know, one of the things that we were very proud of, and I'm, I'm going to kind of toot our horn for a second, is we wanted to really speak to somebody that was involved with at least the launch process. So we reached out to our friends over at ULA who were providing the Delta IV Heavy Booster and we got the, uh, this amazing opportunity to go inside the horizontal integration facility, and there, standing as bold as life, was the Delta IV Heavy rocket. And we put Plunk down two chairs right in front of it, and we did this interview with Tony T. And, of course, Sawyer later on was just a lifesaver. He came in, and he edited it all together and produced this wonderful package out of, you know, out of it that we, we talked to them about. Well, what does this mean for you guys? Because... The Delta IV Heavy has only been used for like military classified DOD type payloads. This is the first time, besides test flights and DOD payloads, 
that the Delta Four Heavy is going to be used to launch something, you know, non-defense related. So it's really unique in a lot of ways. It does kind of harken back to Apollo, but not so much that it seems like it's old and, and been there, done that. And it has a lot of unique aspects and, and a flavor all of its own. Um, and we'll close saying that we're 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 working like crazy to provide some of the best coverage on this as possible. Uh, I'm going to do a little bit of a reveal here on your show. Um, By all we, means, go for it. When we built Spaceflight Insider, there were a lot of different elements that I wanted the company to have. As you know, I've worked for a lot of great blogs and websites, Space.com, Aviation Week, Universe Today. I've I've been there, done that, and got the T-shirt. And they all seem to have one or two little niches that they're really good at. And they, they focus on those things, and they make them their priority. And that's really great in streamlining, but we thought, yeah, we're a small organization, but what if we had aspects of all of this? Well, Spaceflight Now did a great um, pre-launch program in, at the end of the shuttle era, and I was a part of that. I was a part of Space Vidcast's um, final, I think, three or four Maybe even, well, the ones that are on site for three, their final three shuttle missions. And um, I, I missed doing the live show. I missed being out there and, and interviewing the folks, getting everything set up, the buzz before launch. And I wanted that for my company, so I incorporated it. And as the very final last piece of our one-year plan. Well, I'm very proud to say that we've worked with some great folks up in Canada. Sean Costello, Sawyer's going to be hopefully a part of this a bit. Pedro Vasquez, Mike Deep, a bunch of others. Um and we are going to have our own live show for the launch of EFT-1. And we even got a couple special guests that I want to toot about. Right now they are going to – they are signed up and ready to go. Uh, we hope that they will stay uh, green for that. The first one is Bob Springer. He uh, flew on STS-29 and STS-38, and he worked for Boeing on the Delta IV launch vehicle. So perfect fit for that. And the second, who will be our Causeway correspondent, as you know, there's like different areas you can view the launch from. We'll be at the press site with this young lady by the name of Astronaut Abby. Is currently on board to be at the Causeway, and she will interview and do pickups out there. And we're very excited about this. We've got some other special stuff that's uh, uh, in, in the works, and uh, I, I just can't wait for this to take place. I think it's going to be something special. Yeah, indeed. It sounds we know Abby, too. She did our her very first uh, interview with us, actually, as she was leading up to her trip to the Baikonur Cosmodrome. Jason, could you tell us a little bit about the launch vehicle itself, the, the Delta IV Heavy? Yeah, that's not a problem. Uh, one word, monster. This thing is a beast. Um, we've seen, oh, God, Gene, I, I've lost track of all the Delta IV medium launches I have. And those in and of themselves with the Gem 60 boosters at ATK builds, you know, they put those on the side. Those are massive and those are, are powerful. Well, a Delta IV is essentially three, one, two, three Delta IV mediums strapped together. Uh, it is huge. It is uh, currently the most powerful launch vehicle that the United States fields, period, in the conversation. There's a lot of stuff that's that's supposedly in the works. There's the Falcon 9 Heavy, or Falcon Heavy as it's called. There's the Space Launch System that's NASA working on. But at present, the Delta IV Heavy is the most powerful booster that we can field. And it, it's the only one that can really carry out this mission. And so they've had to make a lot of little adaptions to it. And of course, it has to have the interstage in, in the um, 
God forgive me, the, the, basically a converter adapter, which will allow Orion to be uh, mated to the top of the booster. It employs, and I always get numbers wrong, and I'm hoping I nail this one right, three RS-68 rocket engines in its uh, first stage. And if memory serves, there's an RL-10 in its upper stage. Now that upper stage should stick with Orion and help it maneuver through its two orbits uh, through a good portion of the mission. And of course, then when that's all said and done, it'll jettison that upper stage, turn its heat shield towards Earth, and come screaming in at 20,000 miles per hour and providing the most ultimate proof if the heat shield on Orion is up to the job. Wow. Um, hey, Mark, you had you had one other observation you wanted to make. Go ahead. Yeah, while Jason's talking about the speed and the the uh, the dynamics of this of this spaceflight, I want to tell everybody about something that I found via probably Twitter. I don't know, but it's a uh, NASA Orion spacecraft page on Flickr, and they have a set of uh, what it amounts to is posters that you can download. And they each have the uh, title bar across the top of each poster. It says, First Step to Space. And then uh, they have different characteristics of the flight that when you put it all together, it's like, wow, this really is something unique, something to be excited about. Like Jason, we've been hearing from Jason. But uh, one says, First Step into Deep Space, 20,000 miles per hour. The next one is first step to deep space, 3,600 miles. The third one is 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And the uh, the last one is 11 parachutes. And then each has a little bit of a description. It has Orion intermixed with 2014, and they're, they're very attractive uh, posters. And I think people enjoy uh, downloading them and having them for themselves. And Jason, I do have a question about the... The buzz that you've been talking about, the excitement that you've experienced on shuttle air launches and, you know, the that type of excitement that hasn't been there to that degree. You think this is going to be there with Orion? The hotels in the area were sold out, I think, about a week ago. So, yeah, for a while there, we would go to Atlas and Delta launches and there'd be a few cars on the side of the road. And what I've seen at Cape Canaveral and Kennedy, Mark, kind of suggests that people are hungry for this because there was like a Delta Four launch. I want to say GPS 2F5 it was, but the roads were just clogged. And the there's a, a road that goes, forgive me, it, it goes basically from 520. Once you go in, you head towards Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, and usually there's a few cars there. Well, I mean, it was you, you couldn't find a spot. Luckily, I didn't have to go there. I was going with the media. So I drove past, and... The hysteric, well, it wasn't hysterical that day, I'll tell you that much. But normally we have to basically line up at this one parking lot. And the line normally goes maybe halfway through the parking lot. It was out the parking lot, past the uh, Navajo rocket display, and on the side of the road. It was insane. And that was a Delta Four just with a regular launch. So I, I, my, my concern is this, and I, I hate to be negative Nancy, but I, I, I will say this. You'll have Delta. You have this Delta Four launch, and then this may not be known, but that spacecraft is reusable. So they're going to take it down. They're going to refurbish it, and they're going to use it for what's known as ascent abort too. That's going to be used on a peacekeeper first stage, and it's just going to test the uh, uh, the, the rocket's uh, launch abort system. And that's set to take place from Slick Forty Six, if memory serves. Well, that's great, but you know, and then a year prior to that, you'll have hopefully the first flight of vessel. Well, probably that year, two thousand eighteen, or the year prior, but at the very end. 
2017, you have the first flight of SLS and Orion. But if you look at the way NASA is doing things, they have a very limited structured budget. And right now they're doing three years, three years. And then hopefully they, they keep saying, you know, I talked to Mark Geyer. I talked to um, uh, Bob Cabana. I talked to uh, who's the other guy that I spoke to the other day from, from Lockheed. I think his name is Mark Hawes, and it's it's the, you know this is what they have, this is what they can do. But you know, you mentioned excitement. We live in a very attention deficit disorder society, and you got missions that right now are only they're these crew rated missions that are only going to take place three or four years, and then NASA hopes to get missions flying once every other year, and then maybe once a year. Well, I don't know that we're that patient of a nation, at least in this country to wait that time and i, I kind of think there needs to be a little bit of an up tempo there but uh i i think it, it can be if we're willing to be patient and let nasa do what they're good at but i have concerns about people maintaining interest in the space program if if this is the pace that they're keeping so indeed hey jason one of the other things too that i remember reading a, a nasa ig report i guess it was late last year early this year at some point they're actually fl- not going to be flying the life support system for orion until em2 am i right on that if memory serves you are correct em1 will be they'll have the esa provided service module and it'll have a lot of the elements in place but there's no need because there's no crew to fly uh, environmental, you know, crew support systems. Right. So they're not going to bother to incorporate it. I, I kind of think, you know, maybe you should because that's just my opinion. But think about it. If you're going to have folks on these things, maybe you can put, uh, if you're going to, you're going to cover the capsule anyway, why not put some kind of animal in there? Or I hate to sound cruel there, but just to test to make sure this stuff, everything works as advertised. Because, you know, a couple weeks ago, they were very, space had a very bad week. And I'm I'm worried that I was there when Challenger was lost. I was there when Columbia was lost. And it always sounded like we were one accident away from losing the space program and people just giving up on it. And so I, I think that while NASA, NASA isn't wrong in being cautious, I, I think there's going to have to be kind of a mix. You know, back in the day during Apollo, all up, uh, it drove people, I think, at Marshall crazy. They wanted to do it incremental steps to launching Saturn. The guy, the, I, I want to say it was Payne, he said, nope, stack the whole thing like it's going to fly and launch it. I, I kind of think that NASA needs a bit of that with just a little bit of caution thrown in. Yeah, agreed. Uh, problem is, though, that cost, as you pointed out, that cost money. I mean, just the other day, um, I think it was just yesterday, as a matter of fact, uh, there was another NASA IG report basically saying NASA just does not have the funds to go ahead and fulfill the portfolio of missions it's already got. So, um, you know, we're, we're back to that, that point again, but I don't want to go ahead and, and, and end this on a, on a sour note. You know, you've, you've been to Delta IV launches before, and there's going to be a handful of folks that I know of that have never seen one of these things go before. What kind of show are they expecting? I would say that it is the most impressive thing you will ever see because I have seen, quote-unquote, jaded photographers and journalists and the only thing that can compare to it is, is a shuttle. That's the only thing. This thing seems to take forever to get off. The, I think it's even going to be slower this time. In fact, Tony uh, Taliancic over at uh, ULA, I think, confirmed this. It's going to be slow getting off the pad. An Atlas V, I joke that, you know, it's, it's a great launch for rookies because you can go there in Atlas V 401. It doesn't have any solids. And you're like, okay, it's launched. I'm going to go get a soda and be back in 15 minutes. Maybe it'll be a few feet off the pad then. 
it's very slow. It has a very slow uh, launch profile, and then eventually, once it gets up, it, it really picks up the pace. Um, this is going to be a lot like this, but the thing that always impresses me isn't the light or the rumble. It's the shockwave. If you want great video, which is one of my concerns, I'm trying to get us to do more video, you're going to have to hold these things down or sandbag your camera down because eventually that sound's going to come across to you. Uh, we won't be in the same place for this one, I don't believe, but for Delta Four medium launches, we're about a mile and a half out, and you feel like somebody just punched you in the chest when that, when that shockwave hits. And it's going to be three times that. It's going to be a morning launch, not my favorite time. You're going to be looking, I think a lot of folks are going to be mo looking into the morning sun, and that's going to cause kind of a mix. You're going to have, you're going to want all the, the, the beauty that you're looking at, and you're going to want to see it clearly without looking into the sun, but then by the same token, it's going to be rising into this beautiful new day, and it's kind of very symbolic. So while as an artist in some of our images, I, I kind of want a bit more, but I think tapping the Delta Four Heavy was more than just a necessity for launch up mass ratio. It's a necessity because it is going to really drive home what folks can expect to see. It is going to be a beast. It is going to be a monster. It's going to be huge, and it's going to say – NASA's here. We're going beyond Leo. Get used to it. <laughs> That's a beautiful way to go ahead and put the, the cherry on top of this conversation. Uh, indeed, we're back in the business, and this is going to go ahead and put us back into the exploration business. Your description, though, is very, very reminiscent of... If you watch a Saturn V film, you know how it how the Saturn had that slow, majestic rise up there, and we're sort of anticipating the same thing with this, if I'm not mistaken. Again, Jason, thanks so much for your insight. Hey, Mark, too. Um, Jason, I think we're going to be joining you guys down there, if I'm not mistaken. Mark, we're going to be covering this thing wall-to-wall, -wall, aren't we? Give it our best. Yes, sir. And, and Kat, you're going to be down there with us, no, no doubt, right? Kat, you there? Yikes. Uh-oh. <laughs> Sorry, my <laughs> mute would not come off. It was <laughs> been there, done that. that. Been there, done that. Have the t-shirt. It just—it knew how excited I was, and it needed me to take a minute to take a breath because okay. I am going to be there with you. I'm going to be covering this, and I couldn't be more excited. Yep, we're gonna we'll uh, we'll go to work for all you guys too, too as well, and uh, and hopefully uh, we'll we'll go ahead and and provide some some grand coverage, and uh, hopefully go ahead and give you some dispatches uh, directly from uh, from KSC itself. So stay tuned with us. We'll be uh, we'll be right with this story. So moving right along, Russia really really kind of floated. I'd have to say the most oddest trial balloon this week, and it kind of lit up a lot of the discussion boards that I kind of visit and so on, and I thought I'd go ahead and, and discuss it here with, with, with the panel. This isn't the first time Russia, too, has, has done something like this. There were reports kind of permeating around, I guess it was last Friday, uh, November 14th, uh, about Russia kind of splitting from the, uh, from the ISS partnership and launching their own space station in 2017 and pulling out of the International Space Station Partnership come 2020. Now, this kind of flies in the face of a lot of, a lot of other things that I've seen and a lot of other stuff that's been circulating. But when this started hitting uh, news services like Reuters and, and things like that, it kind of got my attention a little bit and said, well, there might be 
where there's some smoke, there's some fire. But uh, in order for this to really, really happen and in order for them to really, really go striking on the, out on their own, there's got to be some sort of paperwork that's got to be filed and, and all this other stuff. From my knowledge, as of, as of right now, we haven't seen Russia filing any of that paperwork yeah, and or I, anything I also like that. So go ahead, Kat. I was going to say, I want to mention that the first report of Russia and its own space station in 2017 was published on Sputnik which is Russia's new propaganda arm, basically has been built up to be almost a buzzfeed of propaganda for Russia. Um, It's meant to target the younger generation in Russia. So if you go on and look at the type of articles that Sputnik carries, it's very similar to the types of things that you see on BuzzFeed with some uh, long-form reporting mixed with Five things Kiev is doing wrong. So this is a story that I have to take with a very, very large grain of salt because Russia is known to do things like this. This is part of their communication and posturing strategy that they have with the rest of the world. Yeah, I saw that article, Kat. In fact, that was one of the things that first brought this thing to my attention and the Sputnik site is looks kind of slick, if I'm not mistaken. It kind of does me yeah. you're a BuzzFeed in a way. Um, in fact, there's a great little piece on this about the Sputnik website on foreignpolicy.com. Uh, we can share that link if anyone's interested in, in yeah, reading it. But it talks about how this has kind of come up to replace Novosti that was dissolved by Russia last year, which is one of their other Russian state news agencies that, you know, had an alternative voice. So this is Russia's new alternative voice. Well, I first saw it there, but then it started getting feed on on Reuters and, and other other sites, too. And I'm just wondering if this was, you know, a case of don't pile on the rabbit or or, or what the deal was. But this isn't really the first time that they've launched this. I'm beginning to think this whole thing was a trial balloon sort of to say, hey, uh, this could amount to uh, another, you know, Vladimir Putin temper tantrum because he was he's always been saying, well, we're going to withhold, you know, the RD-180 engines, which has caused us to go ahead and start developing our own engines. In fact, I believe ULA just bought ahead of time uh, some of the engines there, uh, the eight extra uh, RD-180 engines. Yes, sir. Uh, sorry to butt in, but yeah, they've they've done that. They've also got the specs for them, and they said that they're going to be basically building their own. And I'm not right. sure if you're aware of this, but they're they've already made statements that they're building a whole new launch vehicle. That's right, and I believe Jeff Bezos's company, right. uh, Blue Origin, uh, which we kind of we, we reported here too, uh, is going to go ahead and and do all the homework for that and get that engine in, into production. Yeah, and you know it's funny you trace this back to the end of shuttle and like. You know, we discussed, I think, a while back. It was uh, as soon as the shuttle landed, they were saying, hey, this is the Soyuz Epoch. And then a very short while later, you know, you should never make statements like that. I, I believe it was not not but a month or so later, one of their progress spacecraft did a face plant over in Kazakhstan. And then, yeah. of course, we had the whole uh, Ukraine situation that broke out. And then Dmitry Rogozin, the uh, Russian deputy prime minister, I think his name he, he is, uh, he said that. 
we won't have G we won't allow GPS stations in Russia. We're going to withhold the RD-180. And a precursor to what you guys are talking about, he also said that Russia is going to end involvement in the ISS in 2020. So that might have been actually the first floating of the balloon, as you say. But I mean, this this has been going on for a while. So, hey, Cassie, you had some interesting observations too, as we were we were kind of discussing this uh, pre-show. Uh, do you want to share a few of those? Well, really, just that when we were at IAC, they were talking about how. Russia was actually getting ready to vote on whether they should continue funding the ISS till 2025. And I saw this at the head of agency plenary, or sorry, the head of agency press conference. And so when the heads of other agencies now, because China and Russia couldn't send their delegates, we didn't have the heads of their agencies there. But the rest of the partners were talking about how Russia was considering continuing the funding, they go on a much longer budget cycle than we do. So they're making decisions now, you know, through that time. And so I, I believe it was an eight-year budget cycle Russia uses. So that was the last that I had heard that came from anybody of, I guess you could say, authority. However, they were saying that was going to have to go through Russian parliament. So you don't know what could happen. I mean, the political climate has been changing all over the place. So we'll have to see what happens when it goes to an actual vote. Yeah, what are you the, know, go, ahead. go ahead, Ken, I'm sorry. The, the uncertain political climate and the propaganda coming out of Russia, you know, as Jason was saying, ULA is already looking and will be building their own engines. There are several other uh, companies in America planning to build engines, which is a problem that we have had in American spaceflight is the problem of having readily available engines and having no American-made engines. And this can only be a good thing because we are currently in a political environment that is not necessarily conducive to raising NASA's budget much less the budget of any other sort of scientific research or investigation. But a way around that is the supporting of American innovation and American talent. So whether or not Russia is actually going to launch its own station, which I think we all agree is doubtful at this point that they have either the resources or the plans in place to do so, especially as early as 2017. So whether or not they do that, this type of uncertainty could actually be a boon for the American space industry because we do need to have these sort of capabilities on our own soil. And they are great sells to the people who write and approve the budgets in NASA. Yeah, Ken, I agree. It, I mean, only, in my opinion, only good, good stuff can come out of this because, again, it's going to reinvigorate our own space industry and our own, you know, aerospace industry system wide. It will be interesting. I know the getting back to uh, engine choices and things like that. I know uh, Orbital Sciences in their uh, recovery plan post uh, Antares, uh, they are looking too at replacing the engines. In fact, I believe that uh, they have decided on that engine, but they haven't really revealed it yet because of the CRS two contracts. Definitely. So, and it is. I mean, it's it's a good thing that we are looking at more self-reliance for our own launch vehicles to have engines designed and built here because that is a great selling point when you're talking to politicians. And 
in order for us to get funding, in order to keep public interest, we have to be able to say this is America's next giant leap or America's next step, because that's what gets people's attention when they have ownership in the project. And just like uh, going back to Orion, you know, NASA did the campaign of send your name on Orion that gets American involved and that gives American ownership to this project, which is really important when you have a long cycle between test phases. My first thought when I saw this is how are they going to afford it? Because one of the observations I've made is that Russia is even worse off economically than we are in that case. And we and, and our space program is obviously underfunded. They, they seem to have a habit over there. And this is, again, this is opinion of kind of making promises their resources can't keep. They're talking about going it alone. They had a whole large presentation. I believe I, I alluded to it last week. Um, at uh, Space Fest through uh, Anatoly Zak, he gave a talk of how Russia is going to go ahead and and split off from the ISS, use the new station, quote close quote, as a as a uh, a precursor to a, a lunar landing mission. Do this lunar landing mission and have a nuclear powered base on the moon by the 2030 time frame. And I'm sitting there, okay. How, this is great. They're also talking about an SLS-class booster, a new vehicle to replace uh, Soyuz that, uh, shockingly enough, looks like Orion. And I'm like, okay, but how are you guys going to pay for all this? Hey, guys. Yes, sir. I also own stock in a unicorn ranch. <laughs> that kind of puts it in perspective. Yeah. You, you have to love the audacity and boldness of the Russian propaganda machine. I think perhaps the only country coming close to that right now is China. So I think we can probably put this particular topic safely to bed and essentially say that this was nothing more than posturing. I mean, we had this whole panel has seen reports here about, you know, the Russians wanting to invest $8 billion dollars, the equivalent of $8 billion U.S. into the ISS through 2025. So they're you know, a bit of a mystery over there. And I, if anybody can understand Russia or says they understand Russia, then I'd, uh, I, I'd have to question their sanity. Yeah. But and here's the thing, Gene. As long as Russia has the only way to get people to the ISS, they're going to stay invested. That's a good... You think they're scared? Because, again, you know, as we just talked about, Orion is going up. Now, Orion's mission is not the ISS. Orion's mission is places, you know, beyond the moon. Um, or it will be the linchpin for places beyond the moon. Um, Back to the space race, baby. Yeah, it kind of looks that <laughs> yeah, way. But, but, you know, there's no way that by 2017 they're... Russia will pull out because right now until 2017, they're still the only way to get there. And depending on how test phases for uh, private space flight here in the United States to become our new shuttle to the International Space Station goes, we might not have a way uh, by 2017. And, and most likely we're looking a little bit past that. But, you know, Russia's going to stay involved in the International Space Station as long as they're the only way to get there. Agreed. Agreed. Well, I guess we can go ahead and safely say that uh, 
as um, Jason pointed out, believe uh, the report. I think we have a unicorn ranch ready to go and, and ready to sell. Before we go tonight, let's end this off on a high note. Cassie, there's a very interesting little story going on about uh, future exploration. And uh, it just broke, uh, just I believe, just today. So um, you want to go ahead and, and talk about it a little bit? Well, this mission is called Lunar Mission 1, and the plan is to make it the first crowdsourced mission to the moon. They're using Kickstarter, and the current Kickstarter is actually just for the opening funding. There's a group of engineers, educators, all kinds of people already involved in this. And basically, they want to hire the best people to come work with them and figure out how to make this happen. The idea of the mission is to land on, I believe it's the south pole of the moon, and to drill 100 meters into it and see what's down there. <laughs> then they want to place a capsule that will include people's, basically a digital scrapbook. People can put pictures, music, whatever they can store digitally. And that's part of, if you kick in on the Kickstarter, you get the right to do that. And I believe at higher levels, you also get to include a sample of your hair so that your hair will be preserved for eons to come. As a social scientist, the education side of Lunar Mission 1 is fascinating. And that side is the side that wants to put a time capsule 100 meters down um, as a digital snapshot of where Earth is um, at the time of the mission. It's very fascinating, this idea of instead of maybe sending out a snapshot of who the Earth is like we did with the Voyager uh, record, but leaving something on the moon with this kind of unspoken expectation is that there will be people living on the moon who in the future will be able to retrieve this time capsule and look at it. And they also see the moon as a great way to preserve a snapshot of our moment in human history, possibly past the point of humans existing. They see this as truly something that can last, outlast us. Yeah. Because it'll be idea, in the core of the moon, which is such a fascinating idea. Absolutely. And the idea that this is a crowd-curated project. You know, I compared it to the, the Voyager uh, disc, but that was something that was curated by scientists, curated by the mission. Uh, these little digital memory scrapbooks that the Lunar Mission 1 is offering is going to be snapshots curated by citizens. So it's going to be a much more interesting time capsule and snapshot of the world. And also, actually, anybody who gives to the current Kickstarter, pledging at least 30 pounds or $47, will be automatically enrolled as a member of the Lunar Mission Club and have a direct say in the development of the mission. So it's not just curating what comes back. Everyday, ordinary people can get involved in actually developing the mission so citizen this is science. citizen science and citizen science on a whole new level because it, it's it's asking for specific amounts of donations it's not you know it should be pretty incredible getting to be involved with actually developing the mission making plans being in on the ground floor that's a whole different level of involvement than just you know going to 
you know, take someone else's data and work with it, which of course is wonderful citizen science. But I think getting to be involved for the, they plan on landing this in 10 years. And so you can have 10 years of involvement with a space mission without having to work for a space agency or a private space company. And the site is getting, or at least the, uh, the Kickstarter part of that is getting some activity here. In fact, just talking with, with you guys, it was about 200 and well, I'm sorry, 2,261. And it just went up. No, no joke about a second ago to 62. So somebody's obviously playing it. So right now they're about 2,262 backers. Um, and, uh, they've and they're, got a, they're over a third of the way towards their funding and still have 27 days left. Yeah. And, you know, I saw an interview with one of the leads of this project and they asked him, this was on BBC World News show called GMT that's on every morning. And they interviewed him asking, you know, is this something that's actually scientifically important? Is this really a science mission, this crowdfunded mission, or is it more of a stunt? And they said, you know, no, this is something nobody's ever done and that actually quite a lot of space agencies really want to do. And yeah, so they asked, well, why, why hasn't ESA or NASA done this yet? And, you know, they said, we need more ways to fund this. We need new ways of funding. They haven't been able to do it yet, but they'd like to do it. So I think it's really cool that it's actually a mission that has not just, you know, that isn't just the time capsule, but also actually is going to be testing something we all want to know. Yeah. And just to kind of say what they're looking at, one of the reasons that they are drilling is because you analyze this rock that hasn't been affected by cosmic radiation, meteor bombardment. This is material from the very beginning of our solar system. As you know, it's hypothesized that the moon came from uh, a collision of, of early Earth and another planet. So you're looking at very early four and a half billion year, you know, from four and a half billion years ago, untouched by the elements. So we could really learn a lot about our solar system, just like the Philae mission is going to yield information about our early origins. This would do the same thing. And that's a really big deal to be able to get, you know, any scientist will tell you an, an uncontaminated sample is an amazing thing to get. So there, you know, this isn't just some sort of stunt. There is, there is a, a science value here, no doubt. Absolutely. Uh, and, and it's a great team of scientists and engineers that are working on this. The chairman of the Lunar Missions Trust is an engineer and academic who was a former vice chancellor of the University of Liverpool, University of Glasgow, University of London, these are people who really know what they're doing. It's not It's not even just a group of people that came together. It's people who've worked together, who've worked missions. So they should actually be able to get it off the ground. Yeah, and I'm just looking at, again, I'm looking at the Partners and Advisors page on their website here. And if anybody's interested, it is www.lunarmission1.com. These aren't exactly slouch organizations. University and College of London, uh, Institute of Education of London, over based in London, just a whole bunch of other uh, institutes. And yeah, we should have so mentioned on. that this is primarily it's this is out of the UK. This is very much out of the UK. And that's really cool, too, because 
you know, it's not the largest country and taking on this kind of mission, bringing together this kind of international support, because, you know, it's going to be funded by people from all over the world. It's a fantastic model for how we can potentially do more things in the future. Yeah. And, and by the way, the, the, you, you were talking about just the UK. There was a, a report that uh, I was reading a while back ago on the health of uh, the, uh, the space industry in, in, in the UK. And it's actually pretty good. Uh, yeah, it's actually a growth industry there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So this kind of falls right hand in hand with what they're trying to accomplish over there. I mean, frankly, space is becoming a viable global industry on a whole new level. It, we talk about new space in America, but because obviously we were watching that and that's the ones who are grabbing headlines because they're building all kinds of spacecraft. But it, if you look at Italy, if Germany... There's there's towns in Germany that that the entire industry is space now. It's absolutely incredible what a growth industry this is, which can only be good for everybody. I mean, look at the Isle of Man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I guess so. So this is really something hopeful and something to look for, forward to. And uh, there's a link on the Lunar Mission One site to get to the actual Kickstarter site. If folks are interested in contributing, and again, we will have all of this packed away in our show notes. So again, if anybody's interested, take a look. This is uh, indeed a, a worthwhile endeavor. So I guess that kind of wraps things up for Talking Space 620. My thanks again, uh, Cassie Tamanini, Ms. Kraflas. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. And Cat uh, uh, Robeson, again, thank you so much for coming on board here. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Mr. Mark Raderman, you rock. Thanks so much for being here. Until next time. And Mr. Jason... Ryan, I am so looking forward to hopefully uh, running into you over at KSC, and thanks for uh, subjecting yourself to this mess tonight. I appreciate it. Not at all. It was a lot of fun. And I want to go ahead and thank you, the listener, for making us part of your day here. So until next time, this is Gene McCulka. Thanks for listening. <laughs>